This is a Federal News Network podcast. June is Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Awareness Month. And according to our next guest, managing the risk factors stemming from military-connected PTSD isn't just a job for the Defense Department or the VA. Dr. Ken Marfilius is a former Air Force clinical social worker and mental health therapist. He's now an assistant professor of social work at Syracuse University. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about the It Takes a Village approach to mental wellness in the military and veteran populations. Ken, thanks for making time for this. And I do want to start with the It Takes a Village point that you make in your article. A lot of resources in DOD and VA pointed toward PTSD, pointed toward suicide prevention. But what should the rest of us be doing? Yeah, it takes all of us. I mean, first, post-traumatic stress disorder is a common consequence of war. However, that is certainly not the sole factor for one to develop PTSD. According to the National Center for PTSD, about 15% of returning post-9-11 veterans have PTSD. And there are several risk factors that have an important impact on whether somebody develops PTSD particularly risk factors in recovery environment. One of the risk factors could be prior trauma exposure, even prior to having served in the military. We do know that prior trauma is a significant risk factor for the development of PTSD. What we see in the research is this notion of adverse childhood experiences or commonly referred to as ACEs. And so traumatic experiences that occur during childhood or adolescence That could be anything from physical, sexual, emotional abuse, violence in the home. And these ACEs do, in fact, have an effect on one's health across the lifespan. And so multiple adverse childhood experiences pose significant risk for numerous health conditions like PTSD, substance use disorder, depression, suicidal ideation. And research points to individuals with military service reporting more ACEs. And one may say why. And so while individuals who experience traumatic events during childhood may seek sanctuary in the military. So while this can be very positive, we should also be exploring the associations between childhood trauma, mental health challenges, and how this impacts ultimately the rise in depression, PTSD, and suicide in our military and veteran populations. And so knowing everything that you just said, and and again, sticking with the it takes a village point, what do we know about what tends to work at the community level, you know, outside of the more formal clinical settings that DOD and, and VA provide? Yeah, so I look at this as a sort of public health priority, right? We need the right services in place, right? The communities that have the means to allow individuals to both thrive and survive have the best outcomes. And so if we attack this from a sort of a prevention standpoint, We must provide our children and adolescents opportunities to thrive. Several of these children and adolescents will become military members. So we need parent support programs, right? Not just in the DOD, but also in the civilian sector. Mentors, job trainings, access to quality education. Family-centered schools that include mental health services, right? And so when I talk about survival services, that's, you know, basic access to medical, dental, mental health care, stable, safe, and also affordable housing access to food, and breaking down barriers to transportation. This needs to be done on a local, a county, a state, and a national level because our children eventually become service members, and we want them to thrive in the face of adversity before, during, and after their time in service. So what resources are out there as of now, and how does that compare to what you think is needed? 
Yeah, specifically talking about veteran population, I think there is a plethora of resources, right? And there's local vet centers, there's VA hospitals, there's VA benefits and claims, right? So that's a robust system. Those who may be diagnosed with military-related PTSD could be eligible for service-connected disability compensation and treatment. There's supportive services for veteran families. So this is housing assistance, both financial and also search processes. Locally, there's lots of organizations that serve military and veteran populations. Obviously, in sort of more acute and crisis situation, we have the veteran crisis line. And as far as treatment modalities, we know that trauma-focused psychotherapy is the best treatment. And trauma-focused psychotherapy is any therapy that uses cognitive, emotional, or behavioral techniques to facilitate processing a traumatic event or experience in which trauma focus is really a central component of that therapy. A lot of all that depends on an individual's willingness to access these services, to ask for help. A lot of effort, or at least a lot of rhetoric in DOD over the past, I don't know how long, for as long as I've been paying attention, to try and destigmatize coming forward and asking for help. I'm curious if you'd noticed that environment improve or get better during your time in the Air Force and your time working with airmen there at Barksdale. How has the military in general been doing at that destigmatization? You know, there's certainly more resources available now than there was in the past. We're constantly learning, right? And so post-traumatic stress, we have to understand that it is and always will be part of the human experience, right? It's just been labeled and treated differently. And so from shell shock to PTSD, which, you know, came about in the 1980s, post-Vietnam era, it's an anxiety-related mental health disorder that occurs after an extremely stressful event. And the symptoms associated with PTSD will affect everyone differently. You know, you and I may witness the same event, however, have very different perceptions and experiences, which may lead to a disorder or not. It doesn't make you weaker or stronger. And I think that that message is certainly starting to, to get out. And it, it starts at the top, right? So commanders, you know, military leadership, leaders within our communities, and understanding that mental health is part of human existence, right? And recognizing when you're in a stressful situation, who to lean on. We know that social support is one of the greatest protective factors, right? And you don't need to be a trained therapist to ultimately save one's life, just connecting in the services. These individuals may not ever even be diagnosed after a stressful event with PTSD. However, there are support avenues that they can go to, whether that's familial related, you know, whether it's within your occupation, whether it's in your local community. And so outside of the treatment center and frame, there are also other options that can contribute to protective factors when we experience these stressful situations. I think that messaging is certainly um, improving. Since the genesis of this interview was the, the fact that this is PTSD Awareness Month, maybe just say a little bit about why it's important to raise the level of awareness in the general population about what PTSD is, and what are the most important things that average people should know about it but don't? Yeah, so National PTSD Awareness Month is observed in June and brings forth many awareness campaigns for those who have experienced PTSD. And what is it, right? So um, it's directly experiencing a traumatic event. It's witnessing in person an event that happened to someone else, learning about the violent or unexpected death of a friend or family member, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of traumatic events. And there's different symptom clusters, um, as we refer to it, intrusion, avoidance, negative alterations in cognitions and mood, arousal and reactivity symptoms. And again, the good news is that there are treatments 
for PTSD and recovery varies based on the individual. Just a bit of history there, Jared, is in the early 1900s, as I mentioned earlier, PTSD was typically called shell shock or battle fatigue. And over time, specifically during Vietnam War era, PTSD was named and resulted in a mental disorder, which opens up treatment for these individuals. So the whole goal of June being named PTSD Awareness Month is to raise awareness and let individuals know to include our military populations that treatments are in fact available and they can recover. The National Center for PTSD indicates that around 6 to 8% of the population will experience post-traumatic stress in their lifetimes. Dr. Ken Marfilius, an assistant teaching professor of social work at Syracuse University and a former Air Force clinical social worker, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post a link to a recent article he wrote about PTSD, along with this interview, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. 
um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say, yeah, to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. 
Yes for less. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.